Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Swisspreneur. Today we're going to have a chat with Cedric Waldburger about what makes a good startup team. He will share his personal experience as a parallel entrepreneur as well as his insights as an investor. Now let's have a chat with Cedric and find out what success factors create great startup teams. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SPB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at spbstartup.com. Cedric, welcome to the second episode. It's really great to have you again. And today we're going to talk all about teams. I would like to jump into the first question right away. What mistakes do you see Swiss startups making over and over again when it comes to teams? Yeah, thanks for having me again. Super happy to uh, talk about the topic. Um, I've been involved in quite a few uh, different teams in different roles, both as a, an employee or a consultant, as a co-founder, um, and also as an investor. And um, it's definitely a very interesting and also dynamic topic. Um, I don't think I've seen as many surprises in any other area of startup life. Um, to come back to your question, Swiss startups and teams, um, maybe I haven't seen enough uh, closely enough, or um, maybe there is no commonality, but I don't think there's the typical Swiss startup. Um, I think it all depends on what backgrounds the founders and the early team members bring to the table. Um, but one thing that I can share that um, was not obvious to me and that I've recently learned um, after starting this company or after being involved with the Affinity early on. Um, something that I've seen previously is that sometimes um, when you get together as a founding team or early employees, uh, usually the earlier you join, the higher up in the hierarchy you end up um, in your startup. So I've seen people being named CTO even though they've had very uh, little programming experience in, in the past, or CPO, product officers. Um, and sometimes that's not great for the company, right? You see, you, just because you were there first does not mean that later on when the startup can actually afford to attract someone that has a lot of knowledge in that or target expertise, domain expertise, it might be better for you, even though you were early, to step aside and give someone with more experience that role and pick a new project where you can uh, provide more value. So one thing that we uh, do at Definity is there's almost no titles and no hierarchy, even now that we've reached 60 plus people. Wow. And one thing that that does is it keeps things very dynamic. And from what I've seen so far is it helps people being placed at, at or in a role where they can provide the most value. Um, so if like very early on when we were five or six or seven people, um, maybe there was some temptation to take all these titles and have chief this and that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was a super wise uh, decision by our, finder, uh, by our founder to um, keep us from doing that and just keep everyone's titles and roles very, very flexible and dynamic. Because now that we've grown and we've attracted some investment and uh, we get a lot of inbound applications for jobs, we've been able to fill uh, some of the roles with very, very experienced people. For example, our VP of engineering, uh, Mac, who leads our engineering team, ex 
extremely experienced, um, has 30 plus years of experience in exactly this space. And I think it would have been much harder to bring him in if uh, we had some sort of a more formalized structure uh, before that and we're not, wouldn't have been able to offer him uh, this position. A uh, formalized structure also gives you some sort of guidance, I could imagine. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you give people still guidance while having a very dynamic environment? And how do you decide which person you put into sort of which role when that changes all the time? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a fine line. And I think that's exactly the trade-off. Um, I'm not sure I have the perfect answer, but I can tell you about how we, how we approach it. So um, one thing is we, even as we grew, we tried to have people centralized, meaning uh, we tried to get people to come to the office and talk to each other and see each other. So when you need to make a decision, it's very easy for you to talk to everyone that should be involved in that decision. Um, and second, to also define stakeholders for projects. Let's say we release a new website, then I need to know who's going to sign off on the content for this page or that page. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's more of a, on a per project kind of basis instead of having a formalized structure over the whole company. And then also we realized that now that we're approaching um, 60 to 100 people, um, it is time to formalize at least part of it, uh, knowing that things will still stay in flux and will still change, but it is very um, helpful to to remember that things will uh, have to be a bit more defined now that not everyone can know everyone else in the company. In that regard, which parts would you uh, structure first or give a better guidance first? I think it depends a lot on the project. Um, so for us, um, our core departments are definitely research and engineering. Um, and so those are the ones that we structured first because we needed them to be more efficient uh, immediately. Um, that's just where it's fail or success for Dfinity, whereas operations and some other support uh, departments and roles, I think can be a bit more fluid um, because we're also not growing them as quickly as we are growing the engineering team, for example. Mm -hmm. From what I understood now is there are different phases of a company, like when they were just, like they just founded the company, there are different people involved and different roles. And then the bigger you get, the more you can also start to scale up. There are also new challenges that you face and new adaptions that you have to make to, to fit the new environment. How does this sort of, if I can call it company life cycle, look from your perspective in order what people should be involved with and what roles they should have from yeah. beginning to the, let's say, end in meaning having a very big successful company? I think, I think it was uh, Ben Horowitz who wrote this book, um, Hard Things About Hard Things. Um, which I found a very good uh, source of inspiration, or um, I think he mentions a lot of very interesting uh, anecdotes in there. And one of the takeaways for me was that all the processes break whenever the company triples. So he says, when you go from three to 10, from 10 to 30, from 30 to 100 people and so on, um, basically everything breaks and you need to rebuild processes and, and structure. Mm -hmm. And that's also kind of like the, the span of uh, the, the company size that I've mostly been involved with, zero to 100 people. And I think it's very true. Like at the beginning, you have three people. Uh, they're all founders. You want all to be generalists. So everyone should be able to pick up whatever needs to be picked up and, and get it done. Ten people is when things start to um, general, uh, be a bit less general for some roles. I think that's when you can afford to hire four or five 
specialists that have a very specific role for the company's success. Mm -hmm. 30 people is definitely when you can have a lot more uh, specialization. And then 100, definitely, you will have probably like 10 generalists in the company and 70 or 90 people that have a very well-defined role and, and bring a lot of experience to the table in regards to that role. Yeah, I think that, that would be one of the takeaways for me or one of my observations uh, looking at these different startups that I've been involved with. I think that's a nice point of view and also a very great book recommendation that you just gave us there. By, by the way, also one of the investors in the Affinity, sort of. <laughs> yeah, so although the partner that led our investment is uh, Chris Dixon, mm -hmm. um, who also set up this new fund, A16Z Crypto. Uh, so a fund of Andreas and Horowitz that focuses most or exclusively on crypto projects. Um, uh, so I've never had the chance uh, so far to interact with uh, Ben Horowitz uh, personally. Um, but yeah, they're very close to our office as well. So uh, one day. Hopefully that moment will come. Yes. Absolutely. Do you also see a difference in how the team should interact with each other? Like thinking about, I don't know, weekly meetings, daily check-ins, whatever has worked there from your perspective also according to the company size what are your best practices there yeah i think um so the affinity has an office here in zurich and one palo alto they're nine time zones apart uh, from each other uh, so that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about what are the best practices to make this work to make it not so frustrating for either party mm -hmm. um, because typically when people start to work in the us that's when people here in zurich um, like enter workday uh, roughly. So you have about an hour or two hours of overlap each day, and we need to have processes that make it very efficient. So for us, uh, the, the way we try to build this is to crowdsource ideas and processes. So we created a we, we created a list of questions that we want to have answered. For example, like when can you book a meeting? What are best practices for how do you attend a meeting? How do you keep meeting notes and all that stuff? Um, but then we crowdsource it from all the employees, um, also knowing that things will change over time based on experiences that we make. Um, one example that I can give you is, um, I mean, some of it is very common sense, like you cannot, uh, you should not cancel a meeting less than 24 hours in advance. Um, every meeting should have an agenda. Every meeting should only be attended by the people that need to be there. So as many as needed, as few as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe some stuff that's a bit less obvious is just trying, we have a few people in Japan as well. Um, so just trying to find that one 30 minute or one hour slot that works for everyone around the globe is, is a bit tricky. Um, luckily, the people we have in Japan are very flexible and sometimes they work till early mornings. But then we also try to document stuff a lot more so that we don't need as much synchronous time with each other. So for example, standups do not happen company-wide, but they happen per office. Um, so that's maybe one thing that uh, could be a takeaway. Like we, we believe in synchronizing people a few times per week. Um, right now, I think we do about three standups per week uh, where we synchronize people. And then we do one standup with the whole company biweekly every two weeks. Because sometimes it's also just good to hear each other and uh, listen to the tone of how someone says something. Sure. Because it gives you a different perspective than just Slack and email messages. Absolutely. How does such a standup meeting look like at Definity? Um, I think we're, they're very uh, straightforward. Um, so uh, typically what I look to, like to do with my team is in advance, um, everyone writes down their update. Um, so they send an update via Slack and say what they've been working on and what they're going to work on. Mm -hmm. And then um, the only thing that we're going to discuss is talking points. So they would say, I've done this, I'm going to do this, and I would like to talk about 
this. And then we only go through these. Because um, okay. I found it to be, it doesn't scale really well if everyone gives their update of just what they've worked on, what they're going to work on. Um, during the stand-up, I think that's much better to be done asynchronously via text and then just talk about the issues at hand. Where you also need other people's input because otherwise it's uh, sort of a waste of their time, right? Yes. Cool. You've also, like, you started your entrepreneurial career quite a long uh, time ago with your friend Fabian that you met during your Boy Scout time. Yeah. What made you a good team that you decided to keep on working together for such a long time? Yeah, so Fabian and I have uh, worked on a number of projects. It all started when we were in the Boy Scouts and we uh, built a website for our Boy Scouts club or chapter. Um, and back then, of course, we did not think of this as a company or anything uh, close to that. We were just two kids. Um, he's four years older than I am, so he was about 18 at the time. I was 14. And we just decided to get together on weekends and late nights and start working on websites, logos, corporate identities. And um, this was 2001, so, or 2001, 2002. Uh, so the time when everyone thought they needed a website but didn't really know why. Which was a, uh, a fascinating time for me as a as a teenager. Um, also, quite good market timing. Yeah, it was a, it was a really uh, fun time, um, and I feel like, in in some sense, similar to what the affinity is going through now. With last year, we've seen an enormous amount of interest in the crypto markets, mm -hmm. uh, which are also largely based on blockchain. Um, and now as the market is declining, um, there's a bit less interest, kind of like the dot-com bubble happening in 2001 and then some good projects emerging or making it through that crisis and also a lot of scams and um, less uh, long-term thinking projects uh, also getting out of the market. But coming back to your question, so Fabian and I, uh, very di two very different characters. Um, Fabian is very um, extremely social, uh, great guy, marketing. He studied design or worked as a, as a designer back then. Um, I was uh, definitely an introvert, um, spent a lot of time on my computers, learned coding very early on in my life, always had fun trying to reverse engineer how a computer works. Um, so we got together and we just had fun. We, we started building these websites on the weekend. Um, and that's what we did for the first two or three years. Um, so before MediaSign even became an actual company, we just worked on this as a side project. And uh, every now and then we charged something or we got some money for what we did. But more often than not, we also just worked on something because we had fun doing so. Also sort of a learning experience for you again, I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, especially when he would uh, sell stuff or promise stuff that was not really possible or at least I didn't know how to realize it. Um, those were sometimes long nights, but also very fun uh, once I got a solution or once I figured out the solution. Um, yeah, and then after about four years in, when I turned 18, um, we decided to make it an actual company. There were a few things that contributed to that. One was Fabian wanted to job, uh, quit his job as a radio um, host. He had uh, sometimes very early shifts, sometimes late shifts, and he was kind of tired of that uh, lifestyle. Um, plus, we had picked up quite a bit of traction. So there were, um, back then, um, remember, I'm a, I'm a student at this point, so uh, we had a few thousand bucks coming in per month uh, from the work that we did. So uh, this felt like a, a good opportunity as well. Uh, so we started and, and uh, rented an office, um, put some computers in there, put a photo studio in there. 
And then I also, the, the same day that we officially um, made a company for, or like created the company for MediaSign, I also had my first day at ETH. And now looking back, it was quite naive because I, I always had a very easy time uh, going through school all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. Like math, all the languages, um, never, I never really prepared for tests and I still did pretty well. Um, so my assumption was that uh, now going to ETH, it would be kind of similar. I would just go there every now and then and pick up whatever I found interesting and, and then just write the exams and, and uh, have a good time. And I was so wrong. Reality was a bit different. <laughs> Reality was very different. <laughs> I definitely did not do enough research, but I, I, I'm kind of happy I didn't uh, do more research because otherwise I might not have ch- taken on uh, the two challenges at the same time. But I, I get to ETH and basically after two hours, I realized we had just gone through everything that I knew. And so everything after those first, maybe let's say two hours or maybe it was the first two days, but definitely within the first week, I ran out of knowledge or at least everything that was now coming was new to me, which was super exciting, but also a bit terrifying. I mean, that's a huge challenge that you face at that moment, right? It was a, uh, it was a fun challenge. Yeah, definitely. Definitely one of the bigger challenges. And what we ended up doing is that Fabian would be in the office during the day. Um, so he would usually cover the day shift and then I would go to ETH, study during the day um, and then get back to Rapperswil, which is a city about 30 minutes from Zurich where ETH was. Uh, get there, um, come to the office, uh, high five. We did a quick briefing. And, uh, and then I would sit down, Fabian would go home and I would start coding um, and trying to solve whatever he had sold that day or, or created that day. Um, a lot of uh, nights that I was alone, but I never felt lonely. Okay. So that was a great experience as well. And uh, something that also I think pathed the way uh, forward. Um, so Fabian and I are extremely, we're best friends as well. And we're extremely good at communicating even though we're such different personalities, I think uh, we always managed over the years to, to be very open with each other, um, to be very straightforward. And I think that's uh, one thing that um, kept us from getting into fights or mixing friendship with business in a, in a way that it shouldn't be mixed. How did you sort of do this communication part to make it that successful? How, how did that happen? Did you have like a fixed structure or did it just happen when you high-fived him and had a quick, like, verbally briefing. How did that happen? I think for the most part, it was just lucky. I think we have a very similar th- similar way of thinking or seeing uh, a lot of things in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if we didn't agree on a certain topic, there was always that level that we could go back to where we could still talk to each other. I think that's what um, I always value in relationships. If you have that common ground that you can always retreat to and still speak the same language, even if you disagree on a certain topic that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think to some degree it's luck to the, and on the other side, it's also being very honest with each other, not giving up on your own opinions and, and staying at the table until you've found a solution. Um, something that I've also, I mean, it's not that different from how I've uh, found personal relationships to uh, work out best. If if you're so invested in the relationship that you're not going to um, uh, give up on any discussion or like you're not going to sacrifice your opinion for the other person. Mm-hmm. You're going to talk it out, talk through it. And even if it's tough, sometimes uh, find a solution that you're both um, 
okay with. Yeah, and then I, so there, there wasn't a, a, a tool. I think it was mostly just having a common understanding and talking about what we needed to talk about. And that also helped set up um, the future for how we would work together. So we never actually spent that much time in the same office at the same time. Um, even after I had uh, completed my bachelor's at ETH, I moved to New York for, for a bit and to work on another startup called Small World. Um, mm -hmm. and, and now we were six time zones um, apart, which is not that bad, but it often meant that I would get up at 3 a.m. to um, restart a server or fix some problem that happened. Uh, luckily and fortunately at that point, we also had hired some employees at MediaSign. So we had already made our first experiences with leading people instead of doing the work ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was able to delegate a lot of my work and, and build processes and structures instead. Um, and we learned that uh, if the only tool you have to talk to each other is a phone call or is a Skype call, then it's still better than not talking to each other. Yeah. Um, so we always value the time where we can have dinner together or be in the same office or at the same table. But we also know that there's going to be situations where that's not possible and you still need to talk through uh, both fun but also not so fun topics. And I think uh, Fabian and I were always really good at just doing that, just getting stuff out of the way, not having it sit on our desk or in the back of our mind uh, for too long and just getting to it and finding a solution together. Mm -hmm. You were two co-founders uh, when you started MediaSign with Fabian. Do you think that this is the ideal number or would you do anything differently in that regard? Huh. I'm, I'm not sure there's an ideal number for any type of business. Um, I think for what we did, it was definitely extremely helpful to be at least two people. Mm -hmm. We were both so inexperienced, so it was great to have someone else that uh, I could use as a sparring partner. Um, would it have been good to be three people? I don't know. I think two people also forced us to always uh, come to a common understanding because no one could um, there, there were no two people that could block the other one person right, right. Um, but I think in general um, more than one is definitely better um, I think what I've seen work really well in a startup in Berlin that I'm invested in uh, is four people um, uh, that are extremely smart extremely driven and work extremely well together mm -hmm. um, everything Beyond that, I've seen a bit of chaos. If there's too many founders, too many um, people that uh, sometimes also want to make uh, big decisions, I think it just it can create a lot of noise as well. Mm -hmm. So I'd say somewhere between two and four is probably ideal based on my experience, which is obviously a small data set. But, uh, but still uh, larger than for a lot of people. Um, when doing research for this episode, there's also a quote that stuck with me that I saw over and over again when thinking about a great founding team. And there it said, having shared values, but complementary skill sets. And what you just described seems to be really have to be the case for you and Fabian. What are your thoughts on, on this quote? Yeah, I think it's a great quote. Yeah, I hadn't seen it that often, but uh, I would definitely agree. Yeah, I think the values is probably that uh, meta level that I uh, refer to where you can always talk to each other, mm -hmm. where you're always in uh, common understanding. Um, and then skills should definitely be different. I think not only skills, but also aspirations should probably be a bit different. Um, what I mean by that is 
for example, if, if Fabian and I both uh, would have wanted to um, get the thank you notes from customers all the time or be the best salesperson in the company, we would have stepped on each other's toes way too often. Mm-hmm. But because he was very comfortable being the face of MediaSign, being the salesperson, running events and uh, networking for MediaSign, and I couldn't bother with that. I'd rather spend time uh, on my laptop figuring stuff out, mm-hmm. um, which was something that he didn't enjoy too much. I think that worked out well. Um, so because we had different aspirations, because we had different goals with what we wanted to get out of our role, I think it worked out really well. Different aspirations could, on the other hand, also mean that you want different things out of life. For example, one founder who wants to build a very, very big company, international company, and the other founder may be feeling more comfortable having a local uh, shop, which is not that big. Do you think that there has to be an alignment about that? Or could that also work if you have different aspirations, for example, for the broader company strategy or vision? I think it's very true what you say, uh, and I think there should be alignment, at least to some degree. Um, maybe there's also different lifespans for, for founders, right? Um, maybe uh, the founding team, if it's two to four people at the beginning, maybe five years in or even earlier, three years in, uh, not all four of these people are still at the right place if they're still within that company. Mm-hmm. For example, I personally really enjoy this phase of like five to 100 people. And I'm yet to learn how I perform and how I uh, work with companies or in a company that's like definitely that's soon going to be more than 100 people. Mm. I just I really enjoy this phase where you know everyone and you have a personal relationship with everyone in the company. Um, and then also in regards to how big you want to grow the company, I think it's very true that there's different um, uh, ideas, right? Someone wants to, to build the next unicorn. Other people want to build a lifestyle business that just gives them as much free time as possible and still supports their uh, lifestyle. Uh, one experience that I've made was in, uh, that was probably 2012, uh, 2012 when we uh, started a, an online tailor. Um, I was, back then I was living in Hong Kong for a while and uh, with a guy that I met at the university in Hong Kong we decided to start an online tailor. Um, you might have heard of company like, companies like U-Tailor or Indochino. I think there was, a, there was a time for these kind of companies where they were very in fashion. Mm-hmm. And uh, we decided to uh, build a website where people could measure themselves, pick a fabric, and then we would uh, produce that suit or shirt in Asia and ship it to them. Um, and we opened a little store in Paris where people could come in and get their measurements or touch fabrics. And my, my aspiration there was definitely to build something that's mostly autonomous. Mm-hmm. So something that would not rely on salespeople, like a pure internet business that would grow frictionless. Um, and then what I realized pretty quickly is that um, my co-founder had a different aspiration. He wanted to be a salesperson. He liked the interaction with each and every customer. He liked getting their measurements and talking them through it and uh, making it a long process. So very heavily involved operational. Yes, yes. And not scaling, um, not creating a setup that scales quickly. Um, and I think for him, um, it had a lot to do with quality. I think he believed that the perceived quality of the garment that you're receiving is very connected to the sales experience that you had. And he believed that on a website, you could not never have as good of a sales experience experience as you could have in real life. 
that was an interesting experience for me because I, even going into um, that project, I always knew that we were not 100% aligned. It never was like uh, in other cases, like with Fabian, where I felt there is this common understanding of where we want to get to. Even if we cannot write it down or formalize it, we know we have a similar vision. Um, and this was not the case here, but I thought because the company uh, or the market and the product seemed so good at the time, I thought it doesn't matter if the team is slightly off or misaligned. Um, and you, maybe also if, the, if not everyone is a rock star or is not, um, uh, feels like that's their, what they want to do with their life at this point. And it was a very good experience for me because I learned that uh, obviously it did not work at all. Like you, you as a founding team need to be aligned. You need to be in the same boat. You need to be on the same page. You need to have a common understanding of what the path is. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it will not work. Um, yeah, so that taught me a very good lesson as well. Um, the team is everything. Um, of course, there's product and there's market and everything, um, but the team is what makes it a success or failure. I think that's a very good and strong takeaway. How would you describe the values that you and Fabian shared when you started and did they involve in any way after several years? For both of us, we kind of knew back then that um, media sign would be our first like baby steps as an entrepreneur. Um, it's a service business. It just inherently doesn't scale as easily as a product business. Um, we were selling websites and corporate identities and, and that kind of stuff. So we were selling man hours or uh, uh, services that were produced by the hour by some of our employees. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we both wanted to grow it to um, a, a level of like 10 to 20 people, but we did not want to make this a massive thing because we knew that with more people, there would be more problems as well. There would be more pressure on us to hitting a certain sales target every month, every week. And another thing I think where we were always aligned is that we wanted it to be fun. We wanted it to be something where, that we're proud of. We wanted to uh, reach a certain quality level. Because um, we wanted to be able to go out and say, hey, we're building media sign and, 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 and be proud about that and wearing a t-shirt. One thing that I realized pretty quickly is that building these marketing websites and uh, doing project work for clients was not something that I was super passionate about after the first two or three years after we had made it an official company. And what I really appreciated is that I could talk about it openly with Fabian. I mentioned that to him and we found a solution for that. We started to hire more people. I, I started to take more of a background role instead of being operationally involved on a day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. And uh, he chose the other path. He was really happy uh, being there day-to-day. -day. Um, and so uh, that worked out really well just because we were able to be so open and always find solutions for um, for any changes that we both wanted to make in our life. I think this is also a great example that you described earlier when the founders that started the company realize when they have to evolve or change their roles coming with the time that, that passes. Have you noticed that in any other company that you were involved with, with maybe also that you invested in? I'm just trying to, I, I mean, definitely. I'm trying to think of uh, anecdotes um, that I can share here. One was um, a company that originally consisted of five founders. Mm -hmm. And very quickly in the first year, um, everyone realized that there was one, one out of the five that just did not get along with the other uh, four. He had different ideas of where this company should go, of the culture and um, so while raising a, uh, another uh, round of funding, they actually decided to 
part ways. And it was a very uh, amicable ending to, to that story. So it was actually, it was great. And I think everyone's happier now that uh, um, I think the, the person that left um, was able to found a, find a company that, uh, that's more aligned with his values. And the other four founders, um, we could immediately see there, there was so much tension and stress on the four members before they parted ways and before they were able to talk it out. Mm -hmm. um, just tension that was produced by this uh, culture clash. Um, so that, that was one way where it went really well and very early on. Um, another case, um, coming back to Fabian and Media Science, just because we talked about it quite a bit. Um, so about one and a half years ago, Fabian decided that he also wanted to take a less operational role in Media Science because he had taken on some other projects and, and challenges in his, his life. Mm -hmm. um, so we decided to look for uh, someone to take the CEO role and, uh, and work the day-to-day -day in the company. And then just last month, we decided, or we actually sold the business. So we, we found a CEO um, that led the business for about a year and then started to look for a buyer and found a very, um, someone that uh, would happily take over the business as a shareholder and part-time employee or uh, be operational for part of the time. And um, I think that's another example of where, um, I think because Fabian was able to communicate that his vision or his ideas have shifted, uh, we were able to make uh, adjustments. Um, of course, it doesn't happen from today to tomorrow. Um, but over time, I think it took us like three or, or four, five, six months uh, to find some, someone who uh, was a good fit, um, put them in the company, provide a transition period, and then uh, finally sell the company with that person being on board still. Great. Congratulations to this great solution. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, after, uh, after 16 years of having media sign in my life, uh, <laughs> it was definitely a milestone. Yeah, it was interesting. Absolutely. What I think so interesting about you is that you have a very broad set of experience. And one of them is also Sentask, where you set up a fully remote team in a completely different country, also with people from all over the world. Why did you decide, did you decide to set up a completely remote team? Yeah, I think... There's a, uh, so with Sentask, we have a team, we had a team of about 13 people in 12 different countries. They're not from all over the world, but they're probably plus minus uh, three time zones compared to Central European time. So about one third of the world. And I think there's certain types of businesses that lend themselves really well to being uh, decentralized in terms of where the employees are working from. Um, and there are businesses that are not. For example, with Definity, we're creating these hubs where we bring people together because we believe that having people in one room and them spending a lot of synchronized time with each other in front of a whiteboard is extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Sentask, which is a productivity tool, um, there's not that many hard problems. It's more of a, uh, you need to make it a, Maybe that sounds wrong. It's, it's not an easy, uh, of course, it's not an easy challenge, but there's not as many scientific problems as we have here at the Affinity. So the communication can be a bit less, the synchronous communication, because it, we can get together and talk about the roadmap, and then everyone can go back and work on their own and work um, at their own productivity schedule whenever they feel most productive and when they don't. So in, in summary, Sentask is a, uh, or just to introduce Sentask real quick. Sentask is a task manager similar to Asana or Trello or these kind of uh, distributed task management tools 
What always frustrated me with using them is that they're only built for my existing team. So when everyone has an account in my company, I can share tasks with them and I can create great accountability and visibility. But whenever I work with an outside agency or when I work with my accountant or lawyer, the people where I should be most careful, right? Because I pay them by the hour and also it's very important stuff, um, not to miss deadlines. Um, I could not onboard them into Asana or Trello because they would first need to create an account and uh, I would need to explain the software to them. It was not very simple. Um, so we decided to build SendTask after testing, I think, 48 different products, realizing that none of them offered a very, very frictionless onboarding process. So SendTask, in a sense, is very similar to the tools that I've just mentioned, but you don't need to have an account in order to start collaborating. So as long as I know your email address, I can send you a task. And for you to respond to that task, you don't need an account either. You just open it from your email and you can leave comments, attachments, complete it, change the due date, and so forth. Cool. Of course, you could create an account and you get access to more features for security reasons. Some of these are hidden behind the, the account creation, but mm -hmm. In general, that's what uh, SendTask does. And because the idea is somewhat simple to communicate, um, of course, the devil is in the detail, but like I can tell you as a designer, hey, this is how it should roughly look like. Please come up with ideas and then reiterate from there. Mm -hmm. Or as a developer, if you have the designs and I can give you specs for how it should work, then you can go and it will take you a number of hours or days to implement a certain feature. but usually the road is pretty straightforward, um, at least in this early stage uh, phase. Um, so that plus uh, that I'm always curious and I was wondering if you could transfer what I've learned in my personal life that I didn't really need a constant home, um, if I could transfer that to the business world and create a company without an office um, was an interesting challenge or experiment to me. And so we set out and we, we started SendTask um, also, I was traveling still a lot of the time. So even if we had an office, we uh, wouldn't have spent that much time all together uh, just because I was gone uh, a lot of the time. And it was an interesting experience. Um, I think we're going to talk more about uh, benefits and, uh, and downsides of that model. Uh, one of the things, obviously, is that you can hire from almost anywhere. So you get access to a much, much larger talent pool by having a, a company that allows remote work or remote participation, uh, which I considered one of the biggest benefits um, when we started working on SendTask. And what would be some of the drawbacks that you experienced? I think an obvious drawback is that it's not as easy to build culture. Okay. If you don't have the face time. If you don't spend actual time in the same room, right? Because if I, if I think of how I use Zoom and Skype and all that, and, and also the reason why I I travel so much and even now go to the US very often is because I think Zoom and Skype and all these um, tools are great to exchange information, mm -hmm. to have a 60-minute call and talk about a certain specific topic and come to a conclusion. But they're not so enjoyable that I would just randomly keep my camera open and talk to someone about the movie that they saw last night or last weekend. Right? Right. And in order to work together, I think it's very important to see each other, not just as employees, but as human beings, right? So that we all are much more complex than the email address or the Slack name that appears on the other person's screen. And so Slack and 
uh, email and all these tools, they're great to transfer information, but they're not very good at getting a feeling for the other person. And that's why I think it's so important to come together and create experiences together. For example, with Sendtask, what we did, we had a rhythm of getting together every 12 weeks, roughly every 90 days, four times a year, where we would fly everyone to the same place somewhere in Europe and then focus on two things. One, uh, work-wise, focus on the hard problems where we wanted everyone to, con uh, to chime in and participate in a discussion. Usually that involved vision and strategy and high-level roadmap, um, plus the detailed roadmap. What are we going to work on within the next 12, month, uh, 12 weeks and present that to everyone else for feedback? So that, that, those were usually the mornings. And then the later afternoons and the evenings, we focused on getting to know each other through various experiences. It could be as simple as going out for dinner together, and it could be as advanced as uh, taking them surprise skydiving. So one day uh, when we were in Berlin, I, <clears throat> I told everyone we were going to go picnic um, on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, we picked everyone up, had a little bus, and then we drove to the airport and basically as a surprise went skydiving, <laughs> uh, which uh, some people really liked. <laughs> some people still uh, despise me for um, after all this time. I can imagine. Um, but it was definitely a memorable moment and experience for all of us. Uh, and I think those are the, the, as I said, it doesn't need to be as spectacular every time. It can be a simple dinner. It can be playing in an escape room together or even cooking together. Um, but just creating moments that have nothing to do with work um, uh, explicitly, um, I think is very important to understand each other. I, I saw on TV you also had some pretty rough uh, team sports activities in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, I do. Yeah, we uh, we usually go and work out in the morning. Um, I think it's just a nice way to also push each other a bit, um, to start the day fresh and energized, and then also it just naturally keeps people from uh, making the light uh, their night too late if they know they have to be ready and uh, for push-ups and running at seven a.m. the next day. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's the military influence that we talked about in the last episode. Probably. <laughs> Do you also, like, did you also see any difference how you have to handle people if it, with a fully remote team? I, I could think about if, if someone is, for example, not performing at the level that you expect them, you probably notice that a bit earlier if you have this FaceTime and if you're in the same office because there are also a lot of, like, not directly, objectively communicated aspects to that matter. Did you have any experience in that regard or any problem that you ran into? What I've learned is a very important skill, um, independent from what you do at the company, is that you're a good communicator. Mm -hmm. Meaning you need to be able to put your thoughts into words and be very precise. I, as, uh, as being one of the founders or leaders in Sentask, um, what was always uh, very important to me is to uh, be very open and if I saw any hints of um, people being slightly off or maybe not feeling well to just get on a call with them and, and talk through it. Plus, um, because it might not always be obvious, um, as you said, if, if I see someone coming to the office um, with their heads down, I know something's wrong, which is something that I miss when they're sitting a few hundred kilometers away from me. Uh, so we did feedback rounds and uh, a lot of writing about every six weeks um, where we would ask everyone to give an update on 
how they're feeling, how aligned they feel, um, but also give feedback for how they think the company could do better or any particular member could do better. Okay. Um, so we just try to be very conscious about that, that we're losing a certain part of information. Pick good communicators and give them a tool to make, uh, make us know if anything is off. Mm -hmm. to, to sum this remote team topic up, do you think that the benefits outweigh the, the drawbacks or does that depend heavily on the case that you're working on? I think it does depend on the business that you're building. For Sentask, um, it definitely makes sense. I would um, do it the same way uh, if we had to start over. Mm -hmm. um, and then for other uh, companies, I think it would not work well. Um, I think an aspect that we left out uh, previously is if your company depends on either physical goods, like actually shipping something or building something physical, hardware, or if you have a very, um, for example, sales intensive operation where people need to go door, door to door and they need to uh, just collaborate and maybe um, have meetings together very often in the same room with a client, then I think it, uh, it might be better to not have a remote organization. Okay. I think you've shared a lot of experiences and great learnings with us. Thank you very much for that, Cedric. Is there anything you'd like to add now at the end of the interview that we might have not talked about yet? Maybe just one more thought that um, one thing that we did a bit differently in Centas because we were remote uh, was our hiring process. Um, when I compared to MediaSign where um, we uh, it was very unstructured at MediaSign. We would uh, write a job description, publish that, uh, get CVs and then check each and every CV individually, uh, decide on a few candidates that we wanted to interview via phone and so on and so forth. Um, at Centask, what we realized is that that does not scale too well. Um, because if you can hire from a lot of uh, time zones and geographies, then you might get a lot of applications. Sometimes we got 600 to 900 applications for a certain role. Well, that's a lot of work to look at every CV. <laughs> yes, that would be uh, a lot of work. And I think uh, we as human beings, we're also not very good at being consistent uh, with something as tough as deciding uh, if a CV is good or not. Um, I think if I, I think one book that I've read is Malcolm Gladwell's uh, The Outliers, uh, where he speaks about that bias or also thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. Uh, where he talks a lot about how, for example, um, judges um, make or judge differently based on how long they've been up. So in the morning, they usually uh, have a different opinion than later uh, in the day because they exhaust uh, their mind. So, so we knew we couldn't just, uh, it, it would be uh, quite naive to just try and go through 600 applications by hand mm -hmm. and try to, to find the, the best uh, in that batch. So we, we sat together and we thought about what, what's a good way to go about that. And it was very simple. What we came up with is a very simple tool. We uh, decided to include a tripwire in the briefing. So the briefing would typically take you five to seven minutes to read, about two pages. And in the last part of the briefing, we would leave a tripwire, which said, if you're really interested in this job, then make sure the subject line of your email or response is hey, Cedric, I'm the UX superstar you are looking for. Very simple. Anyone who consciously reads that briefing will get it right, right? Mm -hmm. 
we were able to sort out or filter about 85% of the applicants because they did not get that right. Oh. About 85% of people did not read precisely enough to catch that. And you probably don't want to work with, with them, right? Yeah, we need people, as I mentioned, like we need good communicators. They need to pay attention to detail, especially to written um, information. So that was a very good way for us to uh, sort out the bad apples really quickly. And then we had a few more steps with Google Forms and, uh, and uh, a certain way we asked questions. But I think that was one key thing that we learned that saved us a lot of work mm -hmm. um, early on. Yeah, maybe that's just the last anecdote that I uh, wanted to share with your listeners. I think that's a very smart hack that I'm sure a lot of startups out there can actually just use out in their daily business. So again, Cedric, thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing the great stories with us. Much appreciated. And I wish you all the best of luck for your future projects and especially also Definity. And I'm very curious what we will hear from you in the future. Yeah, likewise, all the best with this project and many others. And uh, thanks a lot for having me again. Thank you.